If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the May 24th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we dish the dirt with Varla Jean Merman, Evie Harris, and Coco Peru to get ready for the release of the remastered Girls Will Be Girls and talk to Rich Valenza. CEO and founder of Raise a Child. But first, we give a Memorial Day shout-out with a gay-back 1978 visit to Sergeant Leonard Matlevich. Hello, I'm Ronald Gold, and this is Gay Alternatives. On March 7, 1975, Technical Sergeant Leonard Matlevich, a 12-year Air Force veteran with three tours of duty in Vietnam and a fistful of medals for meritorious service, walked into the office of his commanding officer at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and presented him with a piece of paper. It said that Sergeant Matlevich was formally declaring himself as a homosexual and announced the intention of fighting the automatic discharge that such a declaration was sure to bring. Discharge proceedings were indeed begun, and Sergeant Matlevich's much-publicized appeal is now before a military court. Should he lose in the military, he will take the case to federal court, where, assisted by such organizations as the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Gay Task Force, he hopes to get a ruling that at long last will guarantee the right of gay men and women to serve in the armed forces of the United States. Leonard Matlevich is my guest this evening for a discussion. And Lenny, you come from an Air Force family, don't you? Right. My father spent uh, 32 years in the Air Force. And again, you know, everything that I am and everything I hope to be, I owe to the United States Air Force. I was, <laughs> I'm serious. I was born on an Air Force base. I graduated from an Air Force high school in England, and all my education has been through the United States Air Force. And once again, what I've done turning myself in, I owe to something connected to the Air Force called Air Force Times Family Magazine. They publish an article on homosexuals in uniform, and it was a very inspiring article. Although the article in the beginning said they didn't think gays should stay in the service, it was the most supportive article I have ever read. I remember reading it myself. It was a whole big magazine section that entirely was taken up with descriptions of rather happy uh, situations of gay people who were lovers in the service, and and, uh, all about how uh, the armed services of many other countries uh, had no trouble accommodating gay 
people in them and so forth and so forth. Wasn't that the case? Exactly. That was a revelation to you, wasn't it? Revelation? Well, it was, yes, but it wasn't because I had already come out. Uh, I already started going to gay bars when the article was out. But it, it was my first positive media that I've ever read about homosexuals. I, I, first of all, coming from the Air Force Times, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. So was I when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> and in the article, it mentioned a man by the name of Dr. Frank Kameny. So one night, I was just sitting down watching television. And I had a brainstorm. Why don't I call Dr. Kameny and just find out exactly what's happening in the gay community? So I called Frank Kameny, uh, for those of you in the audience who don't know, is a pioneer uh, gay liberation person who was uh, the founder of the Mattachine Society of Washington and a member of the board of the National Gay Task Force and a person who has pioneered in legal action against uh, discrimination against gay people. And in that article, it mentioned the kind of work that he was doing. Right. So one night I was watching TV, and I brainstormed to call him. I called uh, Long Distance Information in D.C., and I said, I know his name's not going to be listed. I was just shocked when it was. So I was talking to him on the phone. I asked him, I explained my situation. I didn't tell him I was gay, though. I played straight on the phone to him. I told him that... Um, I was a tech sergeant in the Air Force, and I was a race relations instructor, and I talked about homosexuality in the classroom, and I was just interested for my students' sake, not for my sake now, but for my students' sake, what was going on in the gay community, what legal battles were going on. He explained all these things to me, and then I said to him, well, exactly what type of military case are you looking for? And he said, well, we're looking for a military person, man or woman, who is career, who is willing to come forward public and say, yes, I'm gay, but I want to stay in the armed forces. And I said to Dr. Kameny, well, uh, I might have an individual in mind for you. I'll talk to him and find out. Of course, I was talking about myself all this time. And luckily, I, I was stationed in Florida at the time, and luckily the Air Force sent me TDY, which is temporary duty, for two months to Virginia, which was 200 miles from D.C. So during that period of time, was, there was an opportunity for me to get to Washington, D.C. to discuss things with Dr. Kameny, and I met with the ACLU lawyer, David Adelstone, and at the time, they said, this is a big decision on your part, you've got 11 years in, think about it, it took me a year to think about it. Well, tell me some of the things that you uh, thought about during that year. Well, they told me that they thought in order to win, we'd have to go public, and I thought about family. I thought about, well, who's going to hire a faggot? Who's going to hire a queer that's known throughout the country? What type of work I was going to do when I got out? Oh, just millions of things. My straight friends, would I ever have a friend again? How would my gay friends treat me? Would I ever be allowed to go home to my parents again? Would they want me? Just With all of that negative stuff, how did you decide to finally do it? That's a very difficult question. It's, I guess, just my nature that I see something that's wrong and being in the classroom day after day after day, reading Air Force literature that was saying equality for all, uh, one Air Force uh, Air Force regulation in the 30-1 says that those who discriminate by fact or by inference are not fit to command or supervise. I believe this stuff. And the more I read it, the more I believed in it. And I felt as if here I am in the classroom teaching all these things, yet I am being a hypocrite. And I felt that there was much more than... That for 30 years I lived my life for my parents to make them happy, and I had to start living my life for myself and make me happy. So you just upped and went after that year. Was there some particular incident that made you decide that just suddenly to go, or what happened? Well, not really. It was just um, 
teaching equality and justice over and over again, and for the black person, for the red person, for women, for every minority you could mention. In that classroom, I was a fire and brimstone teacher, you know, equality and justice for them, equality and justice. But when it came to the gay person, I only went halfway. The more I only went halfway, the more I knew I had to go the full measure all the way. I have no regrets whatsoever. I would do it again and again and again and again. So you went to Washington and you got the got piece the letter, of paper. And I still hadn't made the decision to do it. And I didn't make the decision to do it until I gave it to my supervisor. He, was, he walked into the office and he was standing. And I said, um, Captain Collins, you should sit down. He said, why? I said, well, I got something I want you to read and I think you should sit down. Well, he wouldn't sit down. I handed him the piece of paper. And he read it, and then he said to me, well, what does this mean? First of all, well, the expression, I wish I had a camera just to film his face. It was something else. The expression on his face, his eyes must have got, uh, they were well, as big around as footballs, he just, or baseball. He just looked at it. He said, what does this mean? And I said, it means uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, equality and justice for all. And that's the, the court decision on uh, segregated schools are unconstitutional. I said, this is an I am a race relations instructor, and I'm doing my job. I see something is wrong, it has to be corrected. And here we are. But they did decide to discharge you, didn't they? Well, I'm not discharged yet. The discharge date has not been set. My squadron commander decided that I should be discharged for the best interest of the Air Force. I requested a board hearing. The board will meet on the 16th of September, and a decision will be made then. It will be reviewed by higher authorities. I have very, very little hope of winning whatsoever in the Air Force. I have great hopes of winning in the courts. I just hope, of course, that you win your case well, because I think that discrimination is an abomination. Okay, you're just, right. There's no. I just wonder uh, what the consequences of opening up a bastion of our patriarchal society to the revolutionary uh, potential of gay people will be. And maybe uh, if in a while you've won and you're, you're in it and you've begun to change even more than you have, certainly you've come a very long way in, in two or three years. You're right, and I have a very, very long way to go as a human being. I, I, I'm just on the threshold of something I right now cannot even comprehend that's ahead of me. I have no idea where my mind is going to go from here. Uh, our time is just about up, and I want to thank you very much for being with me this evening. Believe me, Ron, it was my pleasure. And my guest today was Air Force Sergeant Leonard Matlovich, whose test case will hopefully guarantee the right of gay citizens to serve in any job for which they're qualified, including jobs in the armed services. Leonard Matlovich died of complications from HIV-AIDS less than a month before his 45th birthday in 1988. His tombstone, meant to be a memorial to all gay veterans, does not bear his name. It reads, When I was in the military, they gave me a medal for killing two men and a discharge for loving one. Now let's lighten the mood with a visit with the stars of Girls Will Be Girls. While we wait for the long-rumored sequel, the next best thing is being able to see the original restored and in high definition. The remastered movie will be available June 1st for purchase on various digital platforms. One of our favorite moments at IMRU has been a chat with the cast of the film before its original opening in Los Angeles. We met to dish the dirt, and honey, 
we got dirty. The place, Hollywood, California. The reason, Evie, Coco, and Varla. They say good things come in threes, or is that death? Nonetheless, much like the Three Musketeers, the Three Stooges, or the Three Little Pigs, this trio of plus-size gals is taking Tinseltown by storm. In what's being hailed as the best 79-minute drag comedy of the last few months, their new film, Girls Will Be Girls, tells the story of Evie, an aging actress who's more lush than luscious, Coco, who longs for a child with the doctor who performed her abortions, and Varla, a big bone ingenue with dreams of Hollywood stardom and more grit than a discount oyster. Nothing like that first puke of the day. Martini? Oh, happy hour for me never starts till after five. Me either. This is only number three. Varla was just telling me all about how she came here from Arkansas. Right, to become a big movie star. And singing sensation. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, it's not as simple as just showing up. You also have to fill out the application. I realize how tough it can be, but that's why I have a plan. I'm going to spend every afternoon at Schwab's drugstore. You know, where Tina Turner was discovered. Uh-huh, except it's a virgin megastore now. Are people still discovered there? Yes, but mainly in the men's room by undercover cops. Hey, how you doing? This is Evie Harris. Hi, I'm the star of the movie, Varla Jean Merman. Hello, I'm Miss Coco Peru. Watching Girls Will Be Girls, so many things came to mind, many of them even pleasant. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Varla, although you... Oh, dear. <laughs> ...have generously referred to this as an ensemble effort. It, it must be gratifying to be singled out by all the critics as the breakthrough star of the film. Huh? Really? Well, that's wonderful. What critics? That's what I want to know. The buzz around my house is that I'm pretty hysterical in this film. And you're buzzed. Well, Evie, let's talk about that. You, you, you played movie Evie. I, I'm not really sure where the characters start and you end because you are Evie Harris and you play Evie in the film. A, a great departure. And, and you play it with what seemed to be little makeup and bad lighting, letting the audience see every last crag and bag on your tired, worn face. Why that unusual choice? Huh? Uh, now, everyone has seen me be beautiful in films. And uh, as uh, you know, when, when would that be? Uh, everyone's seen me be beautiful on stage in Vegas and in, in New York and the Broadway stage and vaudeville. Uh, <clears throat> but in this movie, I try to strip away some of the layers and tell, tell the real truth about what it's like being a huge huge star in Hollywood. You are a huge star, and, and you know, big girls deserve a big screen. Are there any plans to present this in the IMAX format? Oh, that's exciting. Well, I would hope, but we're, uh, we're hoping for girls will be girls on ice. That's what we're hoping. Oh, dear. Hold on a second. It's my agent. Hello, Ron? Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I'm doing an interview right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going great. Oh, yeah, it's a hoot. We're all sitting here naked. No, he, he said he wouldn't mind. Uh-huh. Oh, he's charming. Yeah, no, no, tiny, tiny, tiny penis. Yeah, oh, sorry, wait, he's looking at me now, I gotta go. Okay, I'll talk to you later. This is a question for all three of you. Who would you like to play your character in the big budget remake? <laughs> Susan Sarandon. Nicole Kidman. Me! <laughs> Why the hell not? I got my agent working on it already. <laughs> what do you want people to take away from this film? Hopefully they'll bring more people, and then they'll um, pay to see it, and then they'll buy the video, and we'll make money. That's what I really would like. Yeah, Ron, don't talk to me now. We're busy. I'm going to tell him what I want people to take away from the film. Hmm? 
okay, I'll tell him. He says, I should tell you that I want people to take away from this film just the idea that everyone can just love each other and be happy. Okay, I told him. Now, personally, between you and me, I'd like people to leave this movie and buy more Evie Harris products. Now, I have a line of perfume coming out soon, and I have a wig line called Evie Weavies. <laughs> and they're fantastic for women who's losing their hair. Coco, I'm going to send you a couple free ones soon. <laughs> what side of the bed did you wake up on this morning? <laughs> Evie? She's just a big old haggy drunk. <laughs> See what I mean? We'll have someone clean that up. Oh, my shoes. Despite my keen journalistic powers of observation and our nudity, I was stunned when the girls suddenly announced... Hi, I'm Clinton Loop. Jack Plotnick. Jeff Roberson. Yes, they were men. I covered myself with a Dixie cup and ran down the hall to the office of the film's writer-director, Richard Day. Oh, wait a minute. You're saying that the women in your film were not played by women? Is that what you're, you're telling me? Well, with the exception of Jack, they're all men, yes. Actually, do you know what's funny? Every single female character in our role is played by a man, including when Varla has a flashback to when she was seven years old. We got a little boy and dressed him up like a girl. And there was a therapist on the set? The casting director said, I won't even send out that breakdown because it, it will just, you'll, you won't get anybody to play that role and it'll be very difficult for me to field the angry phone calls. But in fact, there was this wonderful little boy that showed up and did a great job and uh, his mother was on the set and he was having a he was having a really good time I think later he'll write a awful book about it I'm sure look at me then you'll see all around you it's glittery and flashy tonight it's all about Evie tonight it's special and dreamy it's all about Evie so come and look at me tonight thanks for tuning in to my Look at me! And what do audiences have to say about Girls Will Be Girls? Excuse me, miss. An opinion on the movie? <laughs> oh, I feel so damn sick and dirty. I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> she says that like it's a bad thing. But the truth is, on its way to the multiplex, Girls Will Be Girls was a hit at this year's Sundance Film Festival. It played to acclaim at lesbian and gay film festivals in San Francisco, Los Angeles, London, Miami, and Portland. Its trio of stars tied for Best Actress at the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival in Aspen and Best Actor at Outfest in Los Angeles, where it also won Best Screenplay. For more information on the film, point your internet browser to girlswillbegirlsmovie.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. So listen to what we say. Again, the remastered Girls Will Be Girls hits digital platforms on June 1st. Don't go away. We'll be right back with CEO and founder of Raise a Child, Rich Valenza. The exceptional Janis Joplin coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Janis Joplin was born in a conservative family in Port Arthur, Texas in 1943. Facing rejection in high school and college, she found shelter in music listening to jazz, folk, and blues. In 1963, she moved to San Francisco where hippies were not outsiders, joining the rock band Big Brother and the Holding Company. Joplin belted it out in front of huge, sprawling audiences that would sway, clap, and dance. 
Her blues song, Ball and Chain, was a showstopper at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and she was rocketed to stardom the next year by her album, Cheap Thrills. Joplin took as lovers more women than men, but simply defined herself as sexual. It was a dark day when she died from an accidental drug overdose in 1970. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Gene Pembleton. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Next up, my interview with Rich Valenza, CEO and founder of Raise a Child. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. So today in studio, we have Rich Valenza, founder and CEO of Raise a Child, founded in 2011 to make the process of fostering and adopting easier for the LGBT community. What was the impetus for the founding of this organization? It really kind of happened based on my own experience. I got to an age where I decided, well, if I'm not in a relationship by this time, I'm going to go ahead and have a family anyhow. And for me, it always made sense to foster and adopt. Where in the LGBTQ plus spectrum in our community, where do you fall in line? So I'm a, I'm a gay man. I have you know, been out since uh, I was about 27. I might have been a little confused up until that time, but... You worked uh, things out. I worked things out. I found my way. So I was in relationships here and there, but nothing really that stuck. So I decided I'll give myself another five years when I reach 40. And if by 45, I'm not in a relationship, I'm going to go ahead and build this family on my own. Because, you know, I, for the holidays, I would go back to uh, see my family in central Pennsylvania. And, you know, when I was in my 30s, my oldest brother, he had his kids just about fully grown. And then my next brother was raising his kids. And then my sister, who's younger than I am, she had a, a child. It was like, hey, everybody's kind of passing me by. And I became the fun uncle from L.A. But it would be a lonely flight back from central Pennsylvania to L.A. when all of my family had each other. And they would go home and I'd fly home alone. You get to that point, you're now uh, 45. Right. And at the time, single. Yes. But very much available. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that itch, that, that desire to have a family that you can call your own. Right that can travel back and forth with you to those family gatherings back in central Pennsylvania and then travel with you back to L.A. so those flights aren't so lonely. Right. And, you know, not only about me, also my desire to help kids. I have heard the stories of kids in foster care and the loss that they feel and the trauma that they experience. And I always thought that I had a good life that I could share with a child and that I could do what I could to help give them a different kind of life as well. So, yeah, part of it is selfish. Part of it is not. Part of it is just wanting to feel that sense of parenting, to be a father, to really kind of experience life. You know, my family, my brothers, uh, my sister have, my parents have. To leave a legacy. Yeah, 
I started the process. I remember it was a Saturday that probably halfway through training, because you have to go for several weeks, or at least you used to. They changed it now. But there was a time in class where we had to divide up into twos. And I was there as a single parent, and I got matched with a, a young woman that was a single mom. I can't tell you what our case study was, but I certainly remember the two women that stood up. They said, our case study is that we have been raising a 15-year-old boy in foster care and in our homes. The two women weren't related. They were just assigned together. And they said he had just trouble at school, and he's come home from school one day, and he announces to us that he is gay. What would you do? And the one woman said, who was dressed very conservatively, she said, well, this is against my religion, so I would have to send him back to the system. I couldn't raise him, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And the other woman said, well, I'd have to turn him back too, because I have a 14-year-old son of my own that I gave birth to, and there's no way I'm going to allow that one boy to make my son gay. And I got a smile on my face, and I thought, the instructors are going to set these women right on the, the laws in California and how things work. Instead, the three instructors kind of looked at one another, took pause, turned red in the face and said, well, okay, let's continue on. And they never addressed it. Just went right past it. They went right past it. And that m might not have affected anyone else in the class of about 30 people. But it affected me. But but it does reinforce those notions that being around gay people makes you gay. Yeah. Or that many religions talk disparagingly about the LGBTQ uh, community. Exactly. Yeah. So there you are, perhaps the lone you know, person of our community in that group, in that group yeah. waiting for that moment for somebody to speak up and nobody spoke up. So what did that trigger in you? When I decided to do this, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my friends. I didn't tell my relatives back east. I didn't really tell a soul because I knew what I would hear from people, which was, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to take one of those kids in? You know, one of those kids. Yeah. What that did to me in class was I was kind of devastated through the rest of the day. And then for that whole week, I wasn't sure if I was going to go back the next Saturday. So I did go back. And in the final minutes of showing up into the, the classroom, I did run in there and I did finish. So jump to my last day of training there. I had finished. I was driving home. And it was on an autumn day, kind of like today, beautiful. I called my mother back home in Pennsylvania, and I said, Mom, what are you doing? Well, I'm watching the Penn State game. Did you see it? I said, no, I've kind of been busy on Saturdays. What have you been doing? I said, well, remember when I came out to you and you told me what a disappointment I was and how, you know, you were so upset that I'd never give you grandchildren? I'm calling you today to tell you that I'm going to make you a grandmother again. And there was a long pause on the phone. And I look at the flip phone because it's a few, few years ago. And we were still connected. And I said, Mom, are you there? And this wasn't playing out as at all like I had imagined. So what's in your head? Those wheels are turning in her head. What do you think those wheels are saying? My biggest fear was realized that when I came out to my mom, the things that she said to me were going to come out again. That's kind of what happened. When she finally spoke, she said, I guess I'm just 
afraid for you. I said, afraid of what? And she said, well, you're gay and the county, the government's never going to give you a kid. And if they do, they're not going to give you a good kid. And it, those fears that I had all along in this process, the reasons I didn't tell anybody came like and smacked me in the face. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with CEO and founder of Raise a Child, Rich Valenza. Now jump to today. I've been in a relationship pretty much from a year after I met the kids, a year after they moved in, and my partner Jared and I have raised these kids. We have a son that is at the University of Redlands in his first year. He struggled some in his you know, first semester there, but he's getting on track. And I'm getting the notices that um, the bill is due for the second term for him there. So I guess so he's, he's still enrolled. He's still enrolled. I know that. And then our daughter, she's a senior in high school. We're going through that process. And thank God for uh, my partner, Jared. We built this family. And, you know, the best thing, I guess, the perfect ribbon to wrap up that story with my mother happened years ago when the Supreme Court was deciding on marriage equality. And uh, 2015. Yes. It was like the day before the court was going to, to rule on that. And my mother said, what do you think is going to happen in Washington? I said, you know, I have no idea. I have my hopes, but I've kind of learned over the years to skirt around this issue. My mother said, well, you know what? If those assholes in Washington could see what you and Jared have done with those kids, there would be no discussion. I'm really proud of what you've done with the kids. In that moment, all of the two bad experiences kind of were washed away that it had taken years, but my mother got there. My mother understood. It's that energy. It's that kind of thing that pushes me forward with Raise a Child to help other LGBTQ plus people realize their dream of building a family. Because anecdotally, or the studies that have been done by the Williams Institute at UCLA or whomever, we as a community, we LGBTQ people have a special empathy and understanding for the trauma that these kids went through, not to parallel the experience of losing your family or being pulled away from your family. But many of us in our own way have experienced that rejection of our family, feeling the odd person out, whatever it may be. It's come up time and time again that these kids in foster care we have this empathy. We have this passion to helping them. And LGBT parents do everything possible, take advantage of all of the therapies, the benefits, and all in order to help these kids realize their potential. And it makes me so proud to do this work that we do. There is such grace and such dignity and such purpose in the work that you do. We're on the eve of Thanksgiving. And I think of what are the things I'm thankful for. And right now, I'm just, I'm so thankful for spirits like you in this world who had the patience and the belief and the determination to not turn that dial off in this particular instance. When it came to your mom, she said things that you didn't want to hear. She said things that you might have expected to hear. But over the course of time and through example, through literal actions, not just words, but actions, you stayed committed to who you are. The person she brought into this world, coupled all that together over time, she saw what a wonderful parent you were becoming. 
and these beautiful children that you were bringing up in the world that you gave a chance, and she couldn't help but love them. Yeah, for my mother, it's uh, rather simple, I, I kind of think. But I think my mother loves my kids a little more because my kids show her respect that I've been trying to teach them. My daughter ends every phone conversation with my mother saying, I love you, Grandma. And for my mom, that's all it takes. Uh, it just melts her heart and keeps her coming back for more. What I love about your organization, besides everything right now, <laughs> it's not just for the LGBT community, but that it's for all. Now, this successful uh, fostering and adoption assistant model that you created initially for our community is also working well for single straight women and men, for married heterosexual couples, and for communities of color. When did that start to emerge? So... It happened about the same time in, in 2015 after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of marriage equality. And I pray that it stays that way. But at that time, a lot of LGBTQ organizations were wondering about, okay, now that we won that fight, what should we stand for? Where, where should we go? What should our mission be? I would talk to the major organizations around the country and the leaders there and you know, find out what they had in mind. And it was a question, where are we going to get our funding? What what should our next mission be? And for us, ever since we first started Raise a Child, we partnered initially with the Human Rights Campaign, a great organization, a national organization out of Washington, D.C., known also as HRC. We shared a common mission to help build families in the LGBT community. But from the very beginning, they, they funded us to do events with them in New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, in L.A., and we would do the campaigns. If you look around L.A. right now, you may see our streetlight banners around showing all kinds of families, uh, mostly LGBT families, but these are real families that Raise a Child has helped create. And so in those first few years, we insisted that in New York City, when we did the streetlight banner campaign, we were going to feature a lesbian-headed couple, a gay-headed couple, and a heterosexual couple. Because my thought is, if you want to talk equality, to people who don't know equality, you better show them equality. What better way to show equality than to honor a gay-headed family, a lesbian-headed family, along with a heterosexual-headed family? And we got into some arguments about that with HRC. No, we're not paying for that. We'll pay for the two, but we're not paying for the third. Whatever it was, we worked it out. That was kind of the start of it after the uh, Supreme Court decision, we really welcomed more people. The idea that there are over 440,000 kids in mm -hmm. the U.S. foster care system. Every year, there are more kids coming into the system because of the opioid epidemic. Speaking of the opioid epidemic, you have a nephew in central Pennsylvania who started out in environmental law, but soon ended up kind of intersecting with the work that you do. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? So it, it's really kind of an, of an amazing story. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? We'll be right back with more from Rich Valenza after this quick break. A Monument for Bessie Smith, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. 
Blue singing Empress Bessie Smith was tragically killed in a car crash on September 26, 1937, leaving behind her soulful voice on over 160 recordings. Her funeral was attended by thousands of grieving fans, yet her grave remained unmarked until 1970. That year, Juanita Green of Philadelphia and Janis Joplin, a well-known singer herself, secured a marble gravestone to memorialize Bessie. In Bessie Smith's biography by Jackie Kay, she wrote that Joplin had always been a great admirer of Bessie Smith, which had a profound influence in Joplin's music. As fate would have it, Joplin herself died less than two months after her benevolent deed on the 33rd anniversary of Bessie Smith's funeral. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Gizbo. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Now back to Rich Valenza. There are over 440,000 kids in mm-hmm. the U.S. foster care system. Every year, there are more kids coming into the system because of the opioid epidemic. Speaking of the opioid epidemic, you have a nephew in central Pennsylvania who started out in environmental law, but soon ended up kind of intersecting with the work that you do. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? So it, it's really kind of, an, of an amazing story. He, he was the pride of our family, you know, our first kid in the family uh, to become an attorney. And he wanted to study envir- environmental law, as you said. You become a lawyer. I read doctor. Everybody's so proud of you all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> a couple years then after he graduated, he went to work for this small firm in my small town in central Pennsylvania. And I went home and, you know, I saw him. We went out for a couple of beers and I said, you know, well, the family's so proud of the work you're doing. And he said, you know, Uncle Rich, we're kind of doing the same work. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you're in environmental law. He said, well, that's what I hope to do. But he said, each week the courts call all of our law firms in town and assign us a case, a family to work with because the family's running into trouble, mostly with the opioid epidemic. Kids are getting mistreated, they're getting neglected, they're getting abused. This is what's taking over my job. He said, I have so many cases now. And so you and I are kind of in the same business, trying to help out these families and these kids. Here you have your nephew who's dealing with environmental law, but it doesn't matter. There are such a need that are hitting all the law firms saying, look, we need your help with this. With this, yeah. And, you know, not only in the Rust Belt, where, right. where we're from, here in L.A., we have more kids in the foster system in the county of Los Angeles than the entire state of New York. And it, these numbers are growing here. The work that we do at Raise a Child is not only to get out the word to welcome people into this process, to share with them what the benefits are of building a family and getting them to think about becoming foster and adoptive parents, but it's also to support them through this process. And if it wasn't for my friends, my uh, LGBT friends who had gone through this, you know, eight, 10 years ahead of me, that when I had questions, and it's that gift that they gave to me and my family to help us stay on track is the gift that Raise a Child tries to do for everybody that comes on board with us. Because we understand that, you know, 
the recruitment, when I first started, I went to see a, a woman that started a, a foster family agency. And I said, I have so much to learn from you. I said to her, when is it that after a family adopts, do you go back and ask if they want to adopt again or foster again? And she looked at me like, are you out of your mind? She said, once you give them a kid, that's it. They don't want to hear from us again. What we're finding, especially in the LGBT community, is that our families are coming back again because they have this down and they have the support through not only what we can provide them, but through a network of their own family and then other LGBT families, that they are strong families and they're taking kids in to foster or expanding. I can't tell you how many LGBT parents now have uh, their second kid, many third, fourth, and fifth. There's one family that just took in a sixth kid. And, you know, that's not me, but, <laughs> but <laughs> that's God amazing. Bless it. Yes, God bless it. Let me tell you, I'm going to introduce you to my nephew and his husband. They live just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina. Ah. That's where I'm going for Thanksgiving. And within the course of a year, they got married and adopted two children. Wow. Now, they went into it initially thinking they were going to adopt one child. They got the call. And well, we have a brother and sister for you. Without hesitation, they said yes. Now, you've also partnered with the North American Council of Unadoptable Children. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? So that organization, along with HRC, Human Rights Campaign, they have a network of agencies that they work with, foster and adoption agencies. So they're not, we don't have agencies in exactly all 50 states yet, but we have agencies in many of the states who are willing to work with LGBTQ people. There is a push lately with this administration in Washington that is all into religious liberties, allowing these agencies to receive federal funding from taxpayers like you and me, and yet allowing them to discriminate against LGBT people. But it's not only LGBT people. They can discriminate if you're Jewish and you're not you if know, you're not the right religion. If you're not the right religion, if you're not the right color, if you are a unmarried couple, and this happened to my niece and her husband now in Richmond, they went to a religious uh, faith-based uh, foster agency and they wanted to adopt. And it's the church that they go to. And they said, we're sorry, you come back when you're married. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with CEO and founder of Raise a Child, Rich Valenza. If we're discriminating against single moms and single dads and all of that, there are so many women out there whose husbands have passed away that have done an exceptional job at raising their kids. The reverse for, for fathers. There's LGBT people who gave birth in a marriage and then later came out and we have no business discriminating. When there's over 440,000 kids in the foster system, we need every good parent to step up. And we need to celebrate and support every great parent to do this work. Absolutely. The, the ripple effect of those kind of discriminatory practices harms everybody. Now, the nuts and bolts of your organization, as of 2018, a Raise a Child was serving a growing database of over 8,200 current and prospective foster and adoptive U.S. households. Where is that number today? 
First of all, you've done amazing homework on us. I, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Our, our mutual friend, Dr. Kim, ah. would be very proud. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kim is a former boss of mine, full disclosure, and She's an consultant ongoing consultant for, for Raise a Child. Yes. And she is a, a major factor in bringing us together and Thank making you. this conversation yeah. happen today. So we're both very grateful to her. Yeah. So where is that 8200 number database? Is it, has it grown since it, then? It, it's grown since just a couple of years ago. We're now at 13,000 people. That's a considerable growth. Oh, it's unbelievable. So we're adding staff and soon, you know, if anyone is interested in maybe working in this field, take a look at our website or our social media because we're looking to hire. Over the end of this year, 2019 and going into 2020, 20. depending on when an individual hears this particular conversation, of storytellers. If somebody's interested in getting involved with Raise a Child, either as they're interested in adopting or fostering or being a part of the organization in terms of the nuts and bolts of it, how can they do that? How can they reach out? So our website, raiseachild.org, has all of the information. Our phone number is 323-417-1440. But the website you'll find there where you can register if you're looking to learn more about fostering and adopting, or you can donate, or there's volunteer opportunities. In early December, we have a number of events all over L.A. County going on, and these are free events. And we have Alec Mappa, the, the comedian, actor, foster, and adoptive father. He will be there doing a little bit of his shtick. A great uh, spokesperson for Raise a Child, Alec Mappa, wonderful entertainer, He's and a wonderful father. A wonderful father. And we meet you at the door with, you know, a glass of Prosecco or, you know, bubbly water, whatever your, your thing is. To calm your nerves, because I remember what it was to go into one of these meetings and how ill at ease people are. So we want to get through that and really talk to people to their heart and expand their minds about these kids and, and the family that they can create. So we try to take good care of people right from the very start. I tell you, Rich, I think we are kindred spirits because you give me the greatest lead-in <laughs> to something I want to ask you. And so with that in mind, sure. about calming nerves. What would you say as a final word here on Storytellers with Rich Valenza, the CEO and founder of Raise a Child? What would you, Rich, what would you, Rich Valenza, what would you say to someone considering fostering or adopting to assuage any doubts or worries that they might have? What I like to say to people is if you don't have those kind of nerves about stepping forward, if you aren't wondering what kind of parent would I be, then probably we don't want you because we want people who are going to question, did I do the right thing for this child? Did I say the right thing? I go to bed and I think, oh my gosh, did I just say something that my kids are going to be damaged for for the rest of their life? Many parents, the, the homes that these kids are coming into the foster system from, they have parents that don't probably think like that or don't know to think like that. We want compassionate people. We want people that can think outside of the box that is themselves and think about what they can do for other folks. So, yes, I totally understand if you're nervous. I totally understand that your doubts about everything. And, you know, remember, I didn't tell a soul what I was doing because I knew what they would say. But 
luckily, I found my way with my family and with my partner. And Raise a Child is here to help you find your way. So, yes, bring your nerves. Bring all of your concerns. Bring all of that. And let us show you the benefits to fostering and adopting. Everyone is welcome at the table. Absolutely. At Raise a Child. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for this opportunity. Find more information online at raiseachild.org. Wow. All that and there's still time for a last word? And tonight, that's an audio essay from Charlie Bauer that we're calling Pink Freud. As you know, I'm a keen fan of all the new gay identifications within the media. We're swamped in movies and series about gay men all of a sudden. Okay, they tend to be about the usual, the expectation, the disappointment, the hurt and the baggage involved in a relationship. Yes, they're all about gay men shagging like rabbits and taking drugs. What they continually raise for me is the freaky reasoning within the emotional connections we forge as we head through our lives as queer people. I can almost hear the screams, what's with all this goddamn romance being bandied about? Move on, I hear you holler. It's only sex. Whatever you do, just don't mention the other L word, love. To get to the bottom of this, I have to re-emphasize how growing up emotionally as a homo within a straight world has been an impossible task. It stems from some kind of fear that occurs within us when that big difference, i.e. discovering ourselves to be other, sinks in when we're still children. It's as if, from this point on, that self-imposed closet results in us remaining infantile in our emotional measuring. And when we tether that big difference onto the usual whammy of childhood abandonment regarding the love and acceptance of our parents, all queer hell breaks loose. I know, it's Pink Freud, but there we go. It's also been suggested that we somehow emotionally freeze at this point in our childhood, a point where, in our unformed kiddie brains, we no longer feel free to love unconditionally. As a result, we continue onwards through life, understanding less and finding it all unfulfilling as we attempt to live within the constant plot of the heterosexual world. You still keeping up? Good. Nowadays, gayers can marry, get pensions and the rest, but that's only really a fiscal conformity. It's still only a compromise and certainly not the end result of any struggle for the freedom to love. Why? Because homosexuals are still not allowed to love in a heterosexual world. The world which is still naturally peopled by the people who bring forth the smaller gay and straight people. Apparently without love there may be no people. Then maybe the saddest thing is that we may never truly be able to experience love in the same way as we did before our big difference kicked in. Maybe it's all about us homos mourning that parental love forever by realising our inability to have replacement children ourselves. Maybe it is about heterosexual conformity after all. Perhaps even being a gay parent is not the normalising measure it was once rumoured to be. But it's the standards that we gayers tally ourselves to within all this emotional hand-rearing that is particularly harsh. All those emotional rules invented by ourselves when we were unformed, self-regulating children have a tendency to stay in place forever. These are the unfortunate byproducts of the absence of any nurturing or early role models for our type of emotional needs. Brought about because gay emotional needs are still taboo and largely invisible within a heterosexual society. 
Therefore, any emotional codes we try to take with us into adulthood are set to fail and burn like embers throughout the course of our own lifetime. Enough already? Okay, last part. When we get to the teenage baby-making age, we more often than not forget about the whole thing by learning to drink, take drugs, or to socially reinvent ourselves away from the aloneness we have come to recognise as being gay. Unnaturally, and I mean unlike heterosexuals, our potential relationships and friendships are not forged using the same codes as the world at large, i.e. sex partners as potential baby-makers, or friends as support networks for us as parents. Only then do some of us move on to some form of queer culture, to those places where we can kiss each other in public. The other side of this strange old coin is that everything we witness from the moment of our births, every exchange and dream we've ever been sold emanates from the firm and permanent structure of a heterosexual society. So, what is seen to have become normal gay behaviour, like the flat-screen TV and the Prius, is based instead on that heterosexual model which, as I've just mentioned, is defined as shagging, having children and raising them to have their own. Don't forget this model isn't flawed. Heterosexuality works. And it's been proven. Just look in the mirror. Sure, we homos can have IVF and hit the turkey basters as many times as we desire. We too could breed legions of sexual indeterminates. But understand this. We will never stand close to the heterosexual paradigm unless we are first allowed to love without restriction. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Harvey Milk Day was May 22nd, and in a time when gay couples can marry and have kids, we must never forget that we are tall now because of the shoulders on which we stand. We close with the latest from Randy Rainbow. Clang, 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 went Josh Hawley. Good night. So I think what we're seeing now is an attempt by the left to lie about our motivations to lie about our actions in order to grab power. Calm down, Mr. Fister. They want to silence dissent. They want to silence me. And I tell you right now. I am not going to back down before a liberal mob. All the crackpot villains in the GOP only care to cover their behind. And since the last election caused an insurrection, they've lost their goddamn minds. With their far-fetched fairy tales and heartless schemes And their lack of dignity and poise They blabber and spout and they all tend to shout So I try to block out their noise They want to shut down conservatives, they want to shut down the Clang, clang, clang went Josh Hawley. Yap, yap, yap went Ted Cruz. Crap, crap, crap went McCarthy. Cause his party continued to lose. Flip, flop, flip went.
went the flipper. Who's the bitch, 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 went the face. Bitch, 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 went McConnell. As his neck tried to swallow his face. There's not a fact they can produce. So they distract with burger bands and Dr. Seuss. They block relief their voters need. Their only beef is that Joe Biden might succeed. And so push, push, push for their puppets. Yuck, 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 go the dance. Goes Liz Cheney. Cause the party she knew turned anarchic, askew, and obscene. Thanks to Boberg and Democrats are destroying this nation. Big dog. Da, 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 went to Santis. Bang, 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 went the feds. Clang, 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 went Josh Hawley. As their party implodes, gerrymanders, garrotes, and colludes. And that gate sends out nudes. They'll continue to cheat and to spar and repeat all the garbage they Calm down, Mr. Fister.